before we get into everything this morning, uh, let's, let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we thank you for the, the bright sun. We thank you for a place to come and worship and not be afraid. We thank you um, for traditions and memories. And we even thank you for, for maybe even some of the heartache and the, the brokenness that would come to us this time of year. Because if we're, if we're broken, if we're mourning, if, if something isn't sitting right with us, you promise to give us hope by your son. And we thank you for that. Lord, would you be with us this morning? Give us the eyes to see you. Give us the ears to hear you. And give us the willingness and ability to do something about it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so last week, uh, Pastor Steve talked about Mary and Joseph, kind of important people, but it turns out they weren't as important uh, in the story. They couldn't really do anything about their roles, but God used them in mighty ways. And uh, at least that's the prayer for myself. Like, I'm, I'm a nobody, but I hope that God uses, uses me, especially this morning. And today, we're going to talk about a character that, uh, at least for me, uh, I give probably the least amount of attention. Uh, I give more attention to the animals than I would normally give uh, to Herod. Uh, but we're going to talk about him because it turns out he actually plays a crucial role that may have been overlooked in previous Uh, readings of the nativity. So let's start in. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Yes, it works. It works. Okay. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, when King Herod had heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told them, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child when you find him. Report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was. The star that they had seen in the east had led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up! Take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. And he stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, 
I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all of the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. Lord, again, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to hear from you and not from man. Lord, would you just illuminate the scriptures to us so that we can understand you better? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in, in, in opening, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to be said in this first line. Chapter 2, verse 1, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. This may just be an overlooked thing, but Matthew is, in, is intentional. The, the scriptures, God himself is intentional to point out in the days of King Herod. And normally, if, if you're anything like me, you see that, okay, now we know who was, who was in charge. Now we just move on. But to, to have this stated in the days of King Herod, there's so much that, that we would benefit from in understanding what exactly that means. This isn't just a remark just to let him know, okay, so it had to be, okay, it's not a date marker. It's not just to let us know the time frame. But in the days of King Herod has a lot that goes with it that is crucial to Jesus being born at this time. So within, uh, within the scriptures, uh, more, mostly in the New Testament, there, there are multiple generations of Herods that are reigning. Uh, this was a little bit eye-opening for me. All, in all of history, we have nine around nine-ish Herods that reign, nine generations of Herod. And uh, there's three specific Herods that are just found dealing with Jesus from his birth to his death. And uh, that blew my mind away, because when I say Herod, just say Herod. But there's three different Herods just in Jesus' time on earth, so it's good to, to clarify who we're talking about. And he has a a massive family that has a big history. So even as Jim mentioned this morning, there's 400 silent years that we put into between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's a a lot that happened there. And one of those things that happened was there's a group of people called the Idumeans. And they were conquered by the people called the Hasmoneans. And uh, very similar to Daniel and Babylon, when the Hasmoneans conquered people, they uh, indoctrinated them with their own culture. Okay? Now you were no longer Idumean, now you were Hasmonean in everything you do, how you dressed, your name. And uh, that was true for Herod's uh, whole dynasty that, that we'll be talking about. Let's see, we, we, we have, uh, we don't want that one yet. We have the first Herod, okay? And uh, his name was changed after the Hasmoneans had taken over his people to Antipater, okay? And when they were taken over, Antipater was made um, a governor over the region where they were, okay? That's important to note because this is the start of the whole Herodian dynasty that leads up to the Herod that we're talking about and other events in the scriptures. 
And the reason why this is important is because I didn't, when we look at the scriptures, we normally just put on blinders that everything that in scripture, of course, absolutely is true, but that's the most important and only thing that's ever been happening, which isn't true. What we have in the scriptures is gold from God. It, it, is, our, it is his breath. It is our life, right? But there's a lot of other things that are happening while the scriptures are being written, while the events in scripture are taking place. And including that, this first Herod, Antipater the first, uh, he coincides with Julius Caesar. Okay? And apparently what had happened was during uh, Julius Caesar, some of his wars, he was fighting with Pompey, Antipater the first, Herod's grandfather, okay, this first Herod, apparently had saved his life a few times and made sure that Julius Caesar was safe during these wars in Egypt. So because of that, he was a personal friend, personal hero of Julius Caesar. So he had favor uh, with one of the greats. And because of that favor, he was able to pass down to his son, which is Herod's father, who is Antipater II. I wish they had better names, but that's what we have to go with. So Antipater II, from this awesome book of, of history, The Smallness and Greatness of Herod, Antipater II, Herod's father, formed a close relationship with Julius Caesar. So there was Antipater I. I'm sorry, I did mess that up. Antipater I reigned. Antipater II is the one that was close with, with uh, Julius Caesar. These names, are just different names. They have to give them all the same names. So after coming to Julius Caesar's assistance in Egypt, he was rewarded with Roman citizenship in the role of administration of, the Judean, of Judea under the Hasmonean ruler John Harkanus. These are great names. There's so much history to go into. We don't have time. Um, but going into in the days of Caesar, this is before our Herod even shows up on the scene. So we have Antipater I, who's made a ruler. His son is also made a ruler and is close personal friends with Julius Caesar, which leads to the Herod that we're talking about. So this Herod is known as Herod the Great, okay? While uh, his father was an administrator, uh, Antipater II, Herod was also made because he was one of his sons. He was made a ruler as well. And we're going to talk, we're going to talk, talk in depth, but I'm just setting the stage for information that's actually really useful. Then the next Herod is Archelaus. And uh, Archelaus was a bad dude. Now, all of these are bad dudes. We can just look at Herod's and just say that they're a bad guy and not feel bad about it. But if you're Herod, you're an enemy, okay? Archelaus, which we read just later in chapter 2, verse 22, uh, he started his reign by killing 3,000 Jews who wanted relief from paying taxes. So Jews came to him saying, listen, you're doing too much. He just slew 3,000 Jews. And he also slain the people that had complained about other things that had happened when his father was reigning. And that's how he started his rule. That's all we're going to talk about him, but just know that was his, his first move was, yes, not going to do anything for the people, I'm going to kill the people. The next Herod that, that we see is Herod Antipas. Now he's the one that's responsible for beheading John the Baptist. He's the one who uh, Jesus was sent to him uh, for the crucifixion to get verification, and he found nothing wrong in Jesus that warranted crucifixion and sent him back to Pilate. We have another Herod, Agrippa, who actually killed James, the brother of John, 
who also had Peter arrested. We have another Agrippa after that, Agrippa II, who was the judge over Paul in Acts chapter 25. Now, this is really useful for us just looking that all of these are Herods. So, for Jesus to be born in the time of Herod, it's, it's not a coincidence. God was building up a whole story before that star showed up, before the Magi figured things out. God was setting the scene because it had to be done at this time for a specific reason. Now, if you're a Herod, war and power and violence were just embedded in their DNA. They didn't, they didn't really know anything else. And now we get to Herod the Great, uh, who was no different. He reigned for about 40 years. And even in his reign for 40 years, that's such a long time. I mean, how long do we have presidents? Okay? Now, 40 years, and his 40 years wasn't just all rainbows, wasn't just doing stuff for the people, wasn't just giving out money and, and tax relief. He was a brutal and violent guy. And he, the reason why he grew in his political stature first was because of how well he was able to gather taxes from other people, but also because of his brutality, which we see in his entire family. At the age of 25, uh, he first captured this guy called Ezekias, who was causing trouble, causing revolts and, and uprisings against uh, the government, and he killed him. And because of that, he was able to launch, uh, the higher-ups promoted him. And his violence just continued throughout his entire life. Even just hearing, just gossip that his sons wanted to take over his throne someday, he killed them. Just at the, the thought, at the gossip, at possibly hearing that his sons wanted his throne, he, he got rid of them. He had at least ten wives. And out of those ten wives, we know eight of their names. And fathered at least 15 children. And at least one of the wives that he had, his in-laws, he got rid of them. Eventually, he got rid of that wife as well. And he was so protective of one particular wife, Mariami, Mariam, Mariam A., however you think you should say it. Uh, he's, he, he told his guards that while, she was, while they were going away on a trip, if anything happened to him, make sure she dies too. He didn't want anybody to have her. He was just, violence was completely in his nature. He wasn't a rational thinker. He was a, a brilliant architect. He was, a, he was a, a, a powerful leader, but he was not full of grace. He was not the kind of leader that we would want. So I say that to, so that we can understand the context of what it means. Just in that first sentence of, in the days of Herod, this is what Jesus is being born into. This is where the prophecy is supposed to be fulfilled at this time. We're going to keep talking about what that means. And Chapter 2, going back to verse 2. Wise men came from the east saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have, and have come to worship him. When he heard this, he, Herod, was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now this word uh, disturbed, it, it, again, I might just be preaching to myself, but when I come to these scriptures, especially around this time of year, the nativity, a lot of it I just wash right over. Because the one thing about the scriptures physically is they're not changing. 
They're not adding anything new because God doesn't like that. We read that at the end of the book, at the end of Revelation. And, and, and when I read it, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Oh, yeah, there's a manger. Okay, there's animals. There's wise men. There's shepherds. There's angels. And it just kind of glosses over me, at the very least. So going back and trying to really see what the scriptures are saying is not an easy task, especially, again, because they're so familiar. So to understand this word disturbed, it's not just, oh, man, he's really having a bad day. It's not just he, he, he wishes things were different. Going back to these uh, original meaning of this word, this Greek uh, definition means to cause one inward commotion, to take away his calmness of mind, disturb his equanimity, to disquiet and make restless, or to strike one's spirit with fear or dread. And upon hearing that there could be a new king, even a rightful king, this was what had happened. This is what had overtaken Herod. And for me, it it reminds me, uh, it's similar to thinking about Nebuchadnezzar, how he completely lost his mind for a time. Thinking about uh, Saul, just the rage as the Spirit of God left him and he was filled with an evil spirit and he was just bent on on killing David. This is the the inward um, distress, disturbed that is just infecting Herod. So to say that he was an irrational human being would be a complete understatement. And the reason why is because this birth of the Messiah, excuse me, is not just inconvenient. It's threatening his power and his control, but more than that, it's kind of threatening his entire identity, his entire family from before him and after him are rulers that were ruthless and stayed in power. And Jesus threatened all that. Now, there's a lot of debate on this, the last part of that passage, um, that all Jerusalem were also disturbed with him. Scholars really like debating this, um, which we're not going to do. Uh, but some people say that, that Matthew was just kind of embellishing here, that it wasn't actually all of Jerusalem. It was more of uh, just the Jewish leaders, which, which could make sense. Um, some say that, that all of Jerusalem was overwhelmed because uh, they didn't know how Herod was going to respond, which I think would also be fair. You don't know how this guy's going to react. He has a family history of just erratic behavior, and they could be very much afraid. Let's go to chapter 2 and verse 4. So, being disturbed, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and asked them where the Christ would be born. So after Herod's gut reaction of being disturbed by the thought of his throne being taken away from him, uh, his first intentional response as a ruler, as a usurper, as a tyrant, was to strategize. Uh, and he, he didn't know it at this time, but he was really just following rules of war. Uh, There's a book that I'm not going to even try to pretend to say that I've read the whole thing, just bits and pieces, uh, called The Art of War. And one of the the rules uh, is you got to know yourself, right? And I think that contributes to why he was so disturbed. Because remember, Herod and his whole line, they're not Jewish. At the very best, he was part Jewish. He married into Judaism. His wife was a Jew. But being king of the Jews, which Herod was, that's what he was considered by Rome to be, he was not a rightful, true king of the Jews. Because who would have to be the king of the Jews? A Jew. So 
Knowing himself, he has probably some good reason to be afraid, to be disturbed that a true king could come and take the throne out from under him. And another rule is to know your enemy, which Herod is trying to do here. He's scrambling to gather up all of those who can confirm that this stuff is true. So he gathers the, the chief priests, the scribes. Uh, these people were the keepers, the executors of all Jewish law and practice, tradition, scripture. These were the experts that he's calling in. And it can be understood that while these were real groups of people, uh, these real groups of people represent real places, re- real places in uh, the tradition of the Jews. So first we have the chief priests, and uh, we can say that they represent worship. Okay? They were the mediators, really, between us and God. Okay? They, they delegated everything uh, that had to do with Jewish worship. But as we know uh, further down in the Gospels, that they were more focused on outward expression than an inward transformation. Right? And we have uh, the scribes, who were the scholars, the interpreters. They represent the Jewish law and justice. And we know further from the scriptures that they were more concerned with the letter of the law than the spirit that's in the law. Always looking for personal gain or a loophole of some kind. And then you have the magi. Where the unexpected worship, true authenticity, came from these outside folks. See, the spiritual leaders had nothing on the magi when they were coming for the Messiah and the Jewish people, God's people, had nothing. It wasn't until Herod called them in that they're like, okay, this is what, maybe we should do something about this. Wouldn't you think that God's people were the first ones that had the scriptures, that had the keys, that had no excuse would be the ones looking for this Messiah? But they weren't. Which points to their true apathy and disregard for the true purpose of the scriptures. It's, it is unbelievable uh, that the most proper worship, the most sincere surrender, the most genuine offerings came from foreigners, these magi rather than God's own people. Daniel Aiken writes this, the spiritual state of the priests and the scribes is a sobering reminder that mere knowledge of the scriptures is not enough. Hmm. Well, these leaders confirm Herod's fears that this isn't a hoax, that this is real, that this is authentic, um, a prophecy that's being fulfilled. And Matthew, in his own words, then goes on to quote Micah 5.2, which would be very well known with the Jews. And, and even if Herod was ignorant of these scriptures, which it's hard to believe that him being king of the Jews, have, being around these folks, didn't know something. But even if he didn't know these scriptures, you know, someone he would have known and would have heard of was King David. King David, everybody would have known about him. And hearing that this new king, this new shepherd, this new leader was to be born in the same city that the great King David was born and would have solidified that this is a real threat to Herod himself. That there wasn't really any way to to wiggle out of this. Like, David came from this no-place city. And look at how amazing he was. 
And now this other kid is coming that's supposed to be king of the Jews. He's coming from the, the same place, the same shoot, the same line. Herod should be afraid. Go to verse 7. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. This is his master plan. This is, this, is, this is what he had in his sleeve. This is what his, his, his backup, if anything were to happen, this is what I was going to go to. This was his plan. He was going to trick, he was going to dupe these magi who were astrologers, who were scientists, geniuses of their day, guys that had figured out that the prophecy was unfolding and it was unfolding now. Without the scriptures, following by faith the star of God, making their way already just about there to the Messiah. Without the scriptures, without Jewish leaders, without corrupt people in power. They had already figured it out, but his plan was to trick those guys. Paul say that somehow Herod's plan just didn't work. I don't, I don't know how, how, how it didn't happen. It was so airtight. But this is a testimony that God continued to direct their steps, leading them straight to Jesus. And then as we continued to read, he warned them in a dream not to go back the way that they had came. So we're going to skip, skip a little bit, keep going. Uh, we're just trying to focus on Herod. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then that was spoken, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. It says, in voice, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled. Because they are no more. How devastating this would have been. How devastating for those in, in, in Bethlehem that, that, that would have been hoping in this child that being born if they had heard about it. How devastating that, that even for the Magi upon their hearing this, that they came, they were looking for the Messiah. And this was the result. I'm sure some might have thought that this was not a, a fair trade-off. That if the Messiah is going to come, I have to have something of mine sacrificed. See, Herod's fear dictated his response. And his response was to preserve his desires, his passions, his priorities by any means necessary. Now on that right there, with all the context that we've guzzled down at this point, I don't know about you, but more than I'd like to admit, I find myself identifying with Herod. That there's something, things of mine that 
I just don't want to be taken away. That even at the knowledge of Jesus and his hope, I, I want to keep some of, some of me, some of my own identity. Don't mess with that. Rather than immediately putting up our hands and waving a white flag to Jesus, our instinct can often be to silence Jesus. Now in here, in this, in this piece of the puzzle, we have an incredible parallel. It's uh, normally called a type or a typology. That's for, that is a familiar tone with how we should recognize Pharaoh and Moses. The Jews would have connected these dots with their intense knowledge of the scriptures. You have uh, Herod and you have Pharaoh, both guys in power, coming from lines of powerful leaders. They both had it in with the Jews, with Israel. They both had, a, had an intense paranoia of being overthrown. And their response was, kill the next generation. Kill, get rid of any threat to what I'm entitled to. Which we have Jesus and Moses coming out of that, even delivering God's people. Making Jesus the new Moses. But we're talking about Herod. Let's, let's focus on Herod. Herod responded to Jesus with a paranoid, vengeful, violent rebellion as the true king threatened his kingdom, which is putting it lightly, which is a, which is a side a dovetailed lesson that anytime you work to stop or to change God's plan, you're guaranteed to fail, and you run the risk of triggering God's wrath. See, Herod's fear moved him to respond in opposition with wickedness. So, all of that, talking about Herod's history, talking about Herod, talking about the part that he plays in Jesus being born into this time, and we're talking about Herod's response being from fear, and then he just wants to do anything he can by any means necessary to get rid of this threat and to keep what's his. So as we're, as we're wrapping up, my question to you is, how is Jesus threatening you? In what ways does Jesus threaten the identity that you've been given or have created for yourself? Is he threatening your worship? Like the chief priests? Do you have some traditions and, and just this is just how you do things, how you worship, that you're just comfortable with, and it works for you? Is Jesus leading you somewhere in your worship that you're not willing to go? Is Jesus calling out your worship? Is Jesus threatening your ethics like the scribes? Do you try to make the scriptures work for you? Do you try to have both Jesus and what you think is right? Is he threatening your morality? Is he threatening your sexuality? Is he threatening your priorities, your finances, not just tithing? Has he given you something that you know he wants you to give to someone else, but you're unwilling? Is he threatening your reputation? Are you only willing to acknowledge Jesus to a socially acceptable degree? 
as long as it doesn't mess with too much. Your family, your relationships. Is he threatening how you build relationships or how you maintain your relationships? Is he threatening your career? Or is he threatening your entitlement? The things that you think you deserve because you worked so hard for, you checked off the boxes, you were good, you followed the letter of the law. So because of that, you're guaranteed X, Y, and Z. Now, very much like Herod, we tend to focus on what might be taken away rather than what we're getting. And I would love to tell you that that stops the second, the second you accept Jesus, the second your eyes are open and Jesus calls you and draws you and you are his and he is yours. That hasn't been my experience. Every time I think, especially every time I think I'm doing really, really, really well, he points something out and says that you didn't give me this. And I'm hesitant, I'm resistant, because I want what I want. And when Jesus threatens to take away stuff, I fight back. So what are, what are you focusing on? Are you focusing more on what's being taken away? What he's threatening to change and transform? How he's trying to chisel out the unnecessary to get back to your true identity? Or are you trying to hold on to the temporary one? Now we know with that last upsetting passage from Jeremiah that there will be weeping, that there's going to be mourning, inconsolable time. It doesn't end there. The quote that, that Matthew is, is referring to in excuse me, Jeremiah 31, it doesn't end there. Jerry, I think I, I might need you. It ends with hope. It says, this is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration. And your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration. We, we focus way too much on what Jesus could be taking from us. How he's threatening your identity. How he's threatening the kingdom that you've built. The reputation that you've built. The wealth that you've built. The relationships, relationships that you've built. And we focus more on that than there's a hope. There's a hope that you can't get from your reputation. There's a hope that you can't get from your finances. There's a hope that you can't get from your relationships. There's a hope you can't get from your entitlement. We keep those things. Herod was trying to keep those things because that was his hope. But he was never going to find it. As we see, right, the next verse is that he dies. So what are you focusing on? What is Jesus threatening in your kingdom? And what is your response? This is not, I wrestled with this a little bit, but this is not a message where, okay, Follow these steps and you'll get there. 
This is not a, listen, as long as you just stop right now and go, I don't know where you're at. I know where I'm at. I know the things that I have to wrestle with with my own life. But those things that he's threatening in your kingdom, you got you to gotta wrestle with that. And I don't know what your response is. I don't know what your response is going to be. I'd like to think I know what my response is going to be. It's not just going to be instant at the end of a prayer. It's going to be only, it's only going to come after a full surrender. Is there going to be an appropriate response? Because we can respond in two ways. We can try to silence Jesus or take him up on his hope. Amen? When you come to the nativity, when you come to this, this time of year, of the, this, the, the nativity up here, this, these are real people. This is a real thing that happened. Jesus is real. Herod was real. All of it was real. And when you come to that this time of year, getting rid of the stockings, getting rid of the tree out of your mind, getting rid of the lights and the music and the bad theology in some of the songs, get, get, just put all of that aside. Are you coming to the birth of Jesus, preparing for worship? Are you preparing for war? The challenge is to wrestle with that. Dearly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a time together. We thank you for this set-apart time of the year where everything, whether, they, whether people know it or not, whether uh, everything knows it or not, is focusing really on you. That is, we're so welcoming to the distractions. Lord, would, would, would you burst through it all? Lord, as we wrestle with what you're threatening to take away and change, would you bring our eyes, bring our focus to the hope that you give that outweighs everything else? Lord, would you... Would you Bring us to wrestle with our response to the manger, to your son, to the cross, to the salvation. Keep us from just glossing over it and just being so familiar that it means nothing and making us numb. Lord, our hope, the prayer, is that we would all respond with worship rather than ready to fight you for our own little piece of turf that doesn't even belong to us. Bring us to wrestle with that this season. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, church. I hope you wrestle with that, and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas season as we continue. Amen? Amen.